0: What a day, right? <laughs> Isn't that encouraging. People getting baptized and sending out um, ladies to go and serve Jesus around the world and make the gospel known. It's just awesome. We're walking through various passages in this amazing book of Isaiah, where the prophet wrote some 750 years before Christmas Day, when Jesus was born so that we can dial into the meaning and significance of Emmanuel, God with us, God having come to dwell with us. So if you'd follow along, I'm going to read from verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Skip down to verse 10, if you would. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed and he will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. In 2007, April of 2007, Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical musicians in the world, he set his violin case near a trash basket at a plaza in Washington, D.C., and he was sort of incognito. He wore a baseball cap, a T-shirt, and jeans, and he set out a cup and threw a couple of coins in it to encourage donations as people passed by. And the next hour or so, he played six of the most elegant violin pieces ever written. And he played it on a violin that was worth over $500,000. And this was part of an experiment put on by the Washington Post. To quote from the article, it was, quote, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities. The article writes, In the 45 minutes Bell played, 1,097 people passed by. Seven people stopped to hang around at least for a minute. 27 gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32.17. 1,070 hurried by, oblivious to the virtuoso whose talents command $1,000 a minute. There are six moments in the video, so a hidden camera was recording all of this, that Bell finds particularly painful to relive. Article goes on and it says, it's what happens right after each piece ends. Nothing. The music stops. The same people who hadn't noticed him playing don't notice that he's finished. No applause, no acknowledgement. In the interviews conducted after the experiment, only one person recognized Bell. She had attended the concert three days earlier. Stacy Furukawa positioned herself ten feet away from Belle, front row center. Quote. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour and people were not stopping and not even looking and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters. So this Advent season... We're talking about how God sent light into darkness. That's the the title, that's the banner over this whole sermon series. And the problem is that when light entered the world, nobody recognized it. It's too ordinary. We didn't see the glory that was right in front of us. And darkness, you think about it, darkness still works its magic in the world in a number of different ways. Some people groups live in darkness. We've been talking about that this morning. That's why we give to the global offering, so we can send light to parts of the world that haven't seen the light of the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's how darkness plays out in one way. Darkness plays out in other ways. Sort of of like the story of Joshua Bell. So with Jesus, some people pass by. They've heard it on a regular basis, but they pass by distracted by the noise. So that's the darkness of letting other things become substitutes for God. And then maybe most tragic of all, some stop and flip quarters at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that would be, maybe we could call that the darkness of nominal Christianity that supposes Jesus might bless us if we occasionally pretend he's moderately important in our lives. But friends, understand this whole month long, Advent has something way richer and far better for us. Advent is awesome because it shows us where true glory is. Advent is awesome because it's God's means of allowing our ears to hear the symphony of God's glory in Christ. God's magnum opus is ripping here in Isaiah chapter 53. The question is, are you going to hear it? Are we going to hear it? So how do we position ourselves... So, you think about Stacey Furukawa positioning herself 10 feet away so she could drink in the wonder of that moment. How do we position ourselves to drink in the true glory of Jesus Christ? And, and I think to answer that question, we need to position ourselves in front of three realities, all explicated by Isaiah 53. The first reality is this the humiliation he endured. The humiliation he endured. If you're taking notes, here's the first point. The coming Messiah would be a servant. So Isaiah is going to use this term servant in a really loaded way. And he's going to use it on multiple different occasions. In in chapter 42 and 49 and 50 and 52 and 53 and other places he's using this term servant. And he uses it twice in our context. So if you look down, you ignore the chapter breaks and look down in your Bible at chapter 52 verse 13. Verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. So, God's talking about a servant. My servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. So, that's the beginning of these words about this servant who is to come. And then look at the end, chapter 53, verse 11. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous, there's that word again, servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. So what Isaiah says about this servant, um, so there's sometimes speculation and debate about whether all these terms servant are pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And sometimes Old Testament scholars say yes, and sometimes they say no. And so for the, in the interest of time, I'm going to use the back of the book method. So I don't know if they still do that these days, but in school, when I was growing up, there were the answers In the back of the textbook. And you still had to show your work and figure it out, right? But the answers were in the back. And so, in this sense, rather than engage in all the debates and going back to Isaiah 42 and 49, evaluating whether servant really fits Jesus, let's just go to the New Testament where they say, it is. The New Testament writers use Isaiah 53 85 times and they keep saying, hey, y'all, it's Jesus isaiah was talking about jesus so back of the book method we bring that from the new testament back to the old testament and we know this is pointing towards the work of jesus christ we encounter the problem of darkness right there in verse one because isaiah is talking about the messiah but he says who believes what we're saying about him all right, so we're talking a lot about the significance of Messiah's coming. The problem is nobody's buying it. Nobody's believing it. And if you keep reading through Isaiah 53, as we will, you'll see part of the reason is this. Jesus was overlooked because he was ordinary. He was overlooked because he was ordinary. You see verse 2? He grew up before him, before the Lord. He grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So in the farming world, and I'm I'm venturing a guess here because I'm not necessarily, I don't have like a green thumb or anything, but I'm venturing a guess here that dry ground isn't promising. And that's, that's not necessarily what you want. Is a really tender plant and cracked earth surrounding it on all sides. And that's sort of the picture of Jesus. He's growing up, he's like a tender plant, and he's coming out of dry ground. It doesn't look very promising. If you've ever been responsible for hiring someone for a role in your company, and, and the person in front of you, maybe you like them, but, but they don't have the right background. It's a little bit of what we see here in Isaiah chapter 53. You ask the question, Are there some things in Jesus' bio that aren't very promising looking? And the answer is, yeah. Let's just start with his entrance. Born in a cattle stall, surrounded by farm animals, right? That doesn't look very promising. To peasant parents, doesn't look very promising. Okay, but where was he raised? Let's talk about that. Where was he raised and where was he educated? It gets worse. Nazareth. Nazareth. There was a saying in the time of Jesus that people would say, and it was this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the rhetorical answer was no. There's no. Nazareth has nothing. Nobody comes out of Nazareth on an upwardly mobile track. Archaeological dig happened in 2009 in the very place An area of Nazareth and a dwelling and shards came from ranging from 100 B.C. to 100 A.D. So it's right in the range of the place where Jesus lived and and at the date and time of Jesus' life. And the discoveries, quote, suggest that Nazareth was an out-of-the-way hamlet of around 50 houses on a patch of about four acres, You can imagine how jaw-dropping it would have been for Jesus and his family to go to the temple in Jerusalem, the temple mount, the temple court was four times the size of Jesus' entire town. This was massive on a scale you couldn't believe, but he's from the smallest of possible places. So his hometown was embarrassing. His adoptive father was a carpenter. It's good work, but it's not an intuitive place to begin if you're going to be a would-be king. And his mother, let's just talk about his mom for a second. Are we really going with immaculate conception? Does anybody believe that's how Jesus got here? You could see sort of that the ball is bouncing away from him in terms of public perception. You think about his reviews, if you will. So how many of you have done all your Christmas shopping by now? Raise your hand nice and high. Okay, six overachievers in the room. Uh how many of you, when you do your shopping, and most of us apparently still have more to do, how many of you, when you do your shopping, you're going to look at star reviews and you're going to look at what people say about that product? Hands up. All right, all over the room. I was doing that this week. I'm looking at how, if it's a one-star review, it's like, okay, I'm moving on. I'm getting a different thing, right? You read the reviews, and if, if there were ministry reviews in the time of Jesus, Jesus gets one-star reviews from all kinds of people that we would think should be fans, So let's just take it one at a time, his family. His family says, quote, he's crazy. That's their review. (laughs) Mark 3, verse 20, Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The he being Jesus, the speakers being his family members, his siblings. And while we're reading reviews, there's another one right in the next verse, verse 22, the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So, we've just read two one-star reviews, one from his family who says he's, he's nuts, and the other from the Bible teachers who were well-respected in that region, and they say he's demonic. What about the world? The world says they can't stand him. So we we know on this side of the cross and resurrection what many of the scriptures say about Jesus Christ. For example, John 3 verse 16, that God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his one and only son. So God loves the world, gives his son to the world, and you expect the world to say what? Thank you? (laughs) And Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, he says, If the world hates you, it hated me first. The world hated me, John 15, verse 18. What about those he came to save? What did they say? What's their review? Crucify him. Jesus would say in the time of his ministry, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and on a fateful day, Pontius Pilate looks out at the lost sheep of the house of Israel and says, what do you want me to do with Jesus of Nazareth? And they say, Here's what we want you to do, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, the murderer, and crucify Jesus. They kept shouting, Luke 23 says. Verse two of Isaiah 53, you see it. It says, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. Don't we, even in our day, we, we typecast hero roles. So, I mean, everything from Charlton Heston to Matt Damon, to Arnold, you know, to The Rock, right? To all, these, all these roles, we typecast these roles. We're looking for something in a would-be hero. Saul, in the Old Testament, Israel's first king, he looked the part. That's what everybody said about him. Have you seen his shoulders? They're so wide. Have you seen how tall he is? All these comments about, he looks like a king. When he holds a sword in pictures, he looks like he's held that thing before, right? It's credible, Jesus doesn't look the part. You ever watch TV shows, even today, right? You you watch TV shows, and you ever just think, I'd kill to have an average-looking human being somewhere in this law firm on the TV, right? Just, just, is there anybody who's like a six anywhere on this hall (laughs) in this particular workplace, right? Apparently, Jesus didn't grab people's attention in that way. Jesus didn't look like king material. When people looked at Jesus, they said, He's not that impressive. is the carpenter's kid, right? He just doesn't look at, where's the majesty? Where's, where's the glory? According to John chapter 7, his brothers didn't even believe in him. Didn't believe he was the Messiah. That is until after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. Then they believed, but they didn't believe when they saw him walking around. Why? Because ordinary is how he presented himself, as a a fully human person. They didn't see him float down from the top bunk in the morning. He wasn't parting the waters of the bathtub. That, That wasn't, he didn't lead with divinity. He led with humanity. It's what you saw on a daily basis. It's what they saw. Isaiah goes on in verse 3, you see he was despised and rejected. If you read Luke chapter 4, you get to listen in and eavesdrop on how people responded to Jesus' very first sermon. In Luke chapter 4, he preaches his very first sermon, and guess what? People hated it. One-star reviews all over from everybody who attended. My first sermon was bad. I, I hope it's buried. I hope it never sees the light of day. But nobody tried to kill me. Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, they tried to drag him off a cliff. That's how much they hated what he said. And you follow Jesus in the pages of the Gospels, and there he is in John chapter 4, and he's weary, and he can hardly move. He's so tired, and he hasn't eaten, and so he sends his friends to go get him food and bring it back. You see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he looks like he's falling apart. He's sweating droplets of blood, weeping in the garden, and tomorrow this guy's supposed to save the world? I'm not buying it. That's what Isaiah says when he says, he he didn't look impressive from the outside. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us, except for committing sin, Jesus knew every kind of human experience that we know. So loneliness, hunger, exhaustion, disappointment, Betrayal, he died friendless. Shame, he died naked in front of his mom and hundreds of people. Book of Hebrews says to Christians, it says when you feel exhausted and disappointed and tired and betrayed and shamed, remember the one you're running to gets it. He understands. The one who prays for you, the one who advocates for you. He's not untouched by the things that make this world seem unlivable. So, run to him knowing he can finish your sentences in this messed up world. It's powerful. Why? Because nobody comforts like someone who's been there. That's how the book of Hebrews leverages the humanity, the real humanity of Jesus. Here's the staggering truth the staggering truth is, Jesus knew the humiliation involved before he came, before he agreed to this, he knew the terms. He entered in. Nothing in verse 1 to 3 of Isaiah 53 came as a surprise to Jesus. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 that when Jesus came, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Brings us to the second movement of God's symphony in the darkness, the punishment he bore. The punishment he bore. So in verses 4 to 6, we see these pronouns. If you circle things in your Bible, these pronouns tell you why he came. He came to bear our sicknesses. You see that? Carried our pains. Pierced for our rebellion. Crushed for our iniquities. All we, all those pronouns, we like sheep had gone Astray. These verses remind us of what Advent is all about. It's not just about the manger and the animals. It's not just about the angels singing on the hillside. It's about God's Son come to die. He was born to suffer. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before. Jesus did not come first to be a Roman emperor. That's not what his first arrival wasn't political in nature. He didn't come to become a Roman emperor. He came to be pinned to Roman lumber. He came to absorb the blast of God's infinite justice against personal evil and cosmic evil. That's what Advent meant and means. Again, the people cried. What were they saying when Jesus was hanging on the cross? They said, come down and we'll believe you. Come down from the cross, save yourself and we'll start believing you. But we know as Christians on this side of Calvary, it's just the opposite. How many of the great hymns of the faith are hymns about Calvary? And what Jesus did when he hung there for us, for our sins. Friend, here. In the story of the gospel, here in the reality of Jesus' crucifixion, the symphony of God in the darkness, God's remedy to a world gone wrong is what? The blood of Christ. As we used to sing in my home church growing up, the blood of Christ which reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley, the blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. Christian, if you understand this message, if you're grasping these truths, it's not because you figured something out. It's not because you got there by the engines of human logic or moral resolve. No, God let you hear the symphony. You looked at the hammering and heard the hammering of the nails and you saw the groans of the man of Nazareth and underneath it all, God's spirit opened your ear to hear the symphony of God in the darkness. Praise him. Praise him for it. Do you hear the wonder of verse 5? I'm going to make you write real fast here. The wonder of verse 5. We're saved because Christ was our substitute. And now you see all this exchange language. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. We rebelled, but he was pierced. For our iniquities, he was crushed. His punishment leads to our peace with God. And his wounds are for our healing. This is what theologians call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ became a substitute. In my place, the hymn says, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. We were sheep, Isaiah says, we were the sheep going astray, so Messiah had to come and be the Lamb of God. Who bore our rebellion? Whose sacrifice brings us home? It's a marvelous mystery. What do you see in verses four to six? We see the crucifixion of Christ. It's almost, Isaiah again. He's writing this 750 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and it's almost like he's writing it 10 feet from the cross. Four to six is the crucifixion of Christ. Seven to nine, verse seven to nine, is the death and burial of Christ. And if you think about it, Christ's earthly life was bookended by ironies of darkness and light. So two strange phenomena took place at the beginning and end of the life of Jesus. Two strange natural occurrences bookended his life. At his birth, there was light at midnight outside Bethlehem. At his death, there was darkness at midday outside Jerusalem. Ironies of darkness and light. On that day we've come to call Good Friday, it was dark in the middle of the day. The sun ceased its shining. And the question that we're asking this morning is, what was happening in the darkness? If we ask John the Baptist what was taking place as Christ hung on the cross in the darkness, John the Baptist would say, Jesus, God's lamb, was taking away the sins of the world. Mark, tell us what was happening in the darkness. Mark says in chapter 10, he was the son of man giving his life as a ransom for many. Peter, tell us what was happening in the darkness outside Jerusalem. Peter says he, Jesus, was bearing our sins in his body on the tree, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul would say through tears of joy, you know what's happening in the thick darkness outside Jerusalem? God was making him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah, tell us what was happening in the darkness. And Isaiah says, he was being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And in that darkness, the Lord was laying on him the iniquity of us all. That is your Bible tuning your ear to the symphony of God. Humiliation he endured, the punishment he bore, and the mission he accomplished. The mission he accomplished. What we're reading here is known as a servant's song. That's a designation, a term that's used. The book of Isaiah contains four servant songs. And this is the fourth one. And actually to hear the beginning of this servant song, the fourth servant song in Isaiah, you need to ignore the chapter break because it actually begins in chapter 52 verse 13 with these words. Fourth servant song opens with these words. See my servant. So we're singing about the servant. See my servant will be successful. He will be, note these words, raised and lifted up and greatly exalted, raised the resurrection, lifted up the ascension, greatly exalted, seated at God's right hand. So the first words of this servant song in Isaiah spoil the ending. They take you all the way to Jesus, sitting on his throne at God's right hand, ruling over everything. And then you move to the very next verse, Verse 14 of chapter 52, and the servant's exaltation we learn is preceded by his humiliation. Verse 14 says, Many were appalled. His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. And so in verse 14, we see what Christ suffered, and then in verse 15, we see what Christ accomplished. Isaiah 52, verse 15, so he, the servant of the Lord, will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. And so the servant song begins exactly where it ends. We just saw the beginning of the servant song. Look at the ending of the servant song. And we can look at a lot of language here, but I'm just gonna point at language in verse 11 of chapter 53. After his anguish, Christ will see light and be satisfied. After his anguish, he will see light. Well, two verses ago, he was dead. How will he be satisfied if he's dead? How will he see light if he's dead? Answer, he's gonna have to rise again. Implication is very clear. He lives after his anguish. He lives after his death. In other words, after tasting darkness, Messiah would see light. That is, Jesus would see the history-altering effects of his darkness conquering death. And the, the servant song, song number four, the final one, it ends with this picture of Messiah, Jesus Christ, receiving the spoils of his victory. If we had been there on the day Jesus Christ was crucified, if we were 10 feet away from Jesus hanging on the cross, we would not have perceived, we would not have heard the symphony he was playing in the darkness. We, like everybody else, we probably would have said something like, where's the glory? Where's The majesty, I thought this was the king. They got a sign hanging over his head that he's the king, but that's meant to be ironic. That's a mocking sign because he doesn't look like a king. Where's the glory? But Jesus knew what lay in store after his anguish, after his work was finished, and nobody captures that better than Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. He writes, his disciples thought that the cross would be a degradation Christ looked through the outward invisible and beheld the spiritual. The cross, said he, the gibbet of my doom may seem to be cursed with shame, and the world shall stand round and hiss at the crucified. My name be forever dishonored as one who died upon the tree, but I look not at the cross as you do. Oh, shall I tell you what I shall behold upon the cross?' Just when mine eye is swimming with the last tear, and when my heart is palpitating with its last pang, just when my body is rent with its last thrill of anguish, then mine eye shall see the head of the dragon broken. It shall see hell's towers dismantled and its castle fallen. Mine eye shall see my seed eternally saved. I shall behold the ransomed coming from their prison houses." In that last moment of my doom, when my mouth is just preparing for its last cry of it is finished, I shall behold the year of my redeemed come. I shall shout my triumph in the delivery of all my beloved. Oh, and I shall see then the world, mine own earth, conquered and usurpers all dethroned. And I shall behold and vision the glories of the latter days when I shall sit upon the throne of my father David and judge the earth, attended with the pomp of angels and the shouts of my beloved. Hear the symphony of God. God's symphonic masterpiece rings out. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And the deeply relevant question for everybody here is have you given your allegiance to the once crucified but now enthroned king of the ages? Are you following him? Have you repented and turned away from all our substitute gods to run after the only real hope of the world? This Messiah came and he lived and he died and he rose again and he's no longer a lowly baby in the manger. Get this, if God peeled back the heavens and granted us a sight of Jesus Christ right now, I can promise you the last thing you would say is where's the glory? Where's the majesty? No, Isaiah says right here in this servant psalm, here's what's gonna happen. Kings are gonna shut their mouths. Paul says, here's what's gonna happen. Every knee will bow. John says, here's what's gonna happen. Countless redeemed sinners from every tribe and nation will start singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Brookhills, you you think about where we are so we come into the end of the year and we talk about global missions, global missions, right? We give to global missions and we want to finish strong in giving to global missions. What is missions? In light of this passage we're looking at this morning, missions is what happens when the church turns up the music. We've heard the symphony. In the darkness, we've heard the symphony of salvation. And in the new creation, with one voice, all nations will glorify the Father who planned it, the Son who accomplished it, and the Spirit who enabled us to hear God's magnum opus, God's master work. But today there are places in the world where the music has never been heard. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 He's talking about his passion for the gospel to get to the ends of the world and as he's talking about it in Romans chapter 15, guess what song he's humming in the back of his head? The fourth servant song from Isaiah. Here's what he says. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation but as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. So how about this? We adjust our plans in light of this priority. We adjust our time, our talents, our treasure, our giving, so we can proclaim this gospel so that the nations will hear the music, the symphony of God that we have heard by the gracious work of God's Spirit.